This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Our scripture reading this morning is from three different places in the Gospels, showing us three different events in the life of Christ as He suffered. These three events are part of the sermon that we consider or that we have this morning. And they follow the lines of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 15. So first we turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, 32 through 42. And then we turn to Luke 23 and Matthew 27. But first, Mark 14, 32. Mark 14.32, and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Unto death, tarry ye here, and watch. And he went forward a little, and fell on the ground, and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. And saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The Spirit is true, it truly is ready. The Spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And now we turn to Luke, Luke chapter 23, where we find a second event toward the end of Christ's life, which shows us his suffering. Luke 23, verse 13. Luke 23, 13 through 25. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder, was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, 
spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And He said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath He done? I have found no cause of death in Him. I will therefore chastise Him and let Him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that He might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Finally, we turn to Matthew Chapter 27, Matthew 27, we begin reading at verse 33 of Matthew 27, we read through verse 46, 33 of Matthew 27. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, And upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him, the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15. The Catechism is explaining the content of our faith, what true believers believe, for whom we believe. In explaining the content of our faith, the Catechism is explaining the Apostles' Creed, especially now regarding the second person of the Trinity, we believe in the Son, that He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Lord's Day 15, what dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our soul, our body and soul, from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. 
Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. And is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me for the death of the cross was accursed of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, how great is your suffering? How great has God in His providence allowed you to suffer while on this earth? Life is full of suffering. If we, if we do not yet suffer much, we know, as Christ promises in His Word, that all those who will live godly will suffer. There are temptations to suffer. There are consequences for our own sins to suffer. There are sins of others, other people against us to suffer. There is abuse and the long-term effects of it that we suffer. There are consequences of the fall of Adam that we suffer. Sickness to our body, broken bones, heart problems, depression, anxiety, conflict, shame, death, loneliness. Suffering that others may see and know about. And suffering that we may keep to ourselves. The agonies of our own heart. But beloved, this is one issue and a problem even as we face suffering. As we respond to suffering, we turn inward. We focus on our own suffering. How awful it is. And it may be, indeed, extremely difficult for us to bear and this morning, I do not mean, I do not intend to minimize our suffering. There are many of God's people who suffer even more than we do today. But people of God, as we suffer, we tend to turn inward. You must know, of course, that your pastor and your elders and your deacons and fellow members of the church do have compassion upon you. They care about you in your suffering. And especially... They as representatives of Jesus Christ point you upward to your Savior who is an understanding high priest who cares for you in your suffering. He does. He does. But we do need to turn outward. To see others who suffer and to remember especially this. Christ's suffering. For he, this man of sorrows, as Isaiah puts it, Acquainted with all of our grief, this suffering servant is who suffered more than any one of us, and even all of us put together. And for a few moments this morning, though it's not enough, for a few moments this morning, I call you to ponder his suffering and keep your mind on his suffering. Not on how bad my suffering is, but on how great his suffering is. And though we deserve ours, He did not. And He endured more excruciating pain than we can even imagine. You see, beloved, as we ponder His suffering, we're not only turned outward, but the pondering of His suffering is for the healing of our souls. For the removal of bitterness which so easily creeps upon us as we think upon our own suffering. And for the stirring up within us, not only of true faith in Jesus and His suffering for us, the increase of our assurance, but oh, that thankfulness. To give us that thankfulness that we need to have even in the midst of suffering. For that we ponder Christ's suffering. When we look 
at three events toward the end of Christ's life, three events which follow along the lines of the Catechism in Lord's Day 15. Consider with me this Lord's Day and the doctrine taught here under the theme, Our Savior's Suffering. First, the lifelong intensification. Second, the unjust judgment. And then finally, the cursed cross. We begin this morning considering, as I said in the first point, the lifelong intensification of Christ's suffering. But in order to understand that, I bring you to this event in Mark 14 especially that we read. Mark 14, 32-42, where we find Jesus toward the end of His life already in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find what we may call a snapshot, an event that helps us understand the intensification of Christ's suffering. What we have here in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane is the beginning of the climax of Christ's suffering. So if you were to picture a graph, if we could have a graph of the intensity of Christ's suffering, here at the end of Christ's life in the Garden of Gethsemane, you would see a spike in the graph where His suffering increases at an exponential rate. There is a sudden increase or intensification of His pain. Jesus brings His disciples, His closest of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, into the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the night before His death. And those disciples were supposed to join Him and pray with Him as He was enduring this grief. And he, as He was stepping away from them, walking away from them in verse 33 in order to pray to His Father, we read this. He says, Mark says, He began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Think upon those words. To be amazed, children, often we think of as a positive thing, to be amazed by something wonderful. And we're so stirred up, we often sometimes even lose control of our emotions in our mouth. We're so amazed. But this amazement now that Mark speaks of is, is a negative kind of amazement. He is so struck with a grief, a fear even. There's a negative shock and trauma and amazement that shakes Jesus, the Son of God. He is shaking. He is trembling, body and soul. He is sore amazed and He is very heavy, Mark says. The Spirit says. Trouble. Extremely distressed. As though there is something pressing down heavily upon His shoulders. And verse 34 shows Him as He walks away with this heavy burden and this shock of grief within his soul. My soul, he says to his disciples, is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Terry here, watch. The pain that he felt upon his soul is so great, has intensified to such a degree that Jesus Himself says, I feel like I'm about to die. Sorrowful even unto death. And then, verse 35 shows him falling, collapsing on the ground to pray. If it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And Luke tells us in a parallel passage of Luke 22 that as he prayed with this, with this burden and this sore amazement and sorrow of heart, there was such a burden and a pressing in upon his soul that great drops of blood came out of his sweat pores and fell upon the ground. Scientists can't explain that. I can't fully explain that. But the burden 
of suffering that Jesus was experiencing in that intense agony in the Garden of Gethsemane was indeed like the bleeding of His soul so that He was already in His soul, as it were, bleeding to death that it came out of His sweat pores. Not in little drops, but we read, Dr. Luke says, great drops of blood on the ground. That suffering, incomprehensible. It shows, I said, the beginning, a spike, the beginning of the climax of his pain toward the end of his life. But now, turn to the catechism and understand this intensification. It was not just at the end of his life, it was not just at Gethsemane that he was suffering. The catechism says that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. So yes, now there is an exponential increase of rate of suffering at the end of his life in Gethsemane. But from the very beginning, that is, at the moment of his conception in the womb of Mary, if we were to have a graph of his suffering again, there was already a slope. An increasing of suffering through his life. Until Gethsemane where there was a spike of this agony. Isaiah 53 confirms that. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, we find this explanation, this prophecy. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Very well known to Him, acquainted is His grief. He is a man of sorrows. All His life, He had this sorrow, this suffering within His soul. Which tells us, beloved, that his suffering all his life, and even at the end of his life, was mainly of the soul. That's why it's so difficult for us to really fully understand this. Yes, of course, he endured suffering as to his body also. Already as a, as a little child, he felt the stress within the womb of, of Mary as she traveled a hundred miles from from Nazareth to Bethlehem, even there he was already suffering physically. When he was born, he was born into poverty. He didn't have all the comforts of life that many of us have. As Right after he was born, he had to flee to Egypt with his parents. He had to endure difficulties as Herod tried to kill him. Through his, through his childhood and through his life, he endured sickness and pain and sprains and cuts and fatigue and hunger and thirst to an intense degree, physical hardship all through his life. Bodily suffering, no doubt. But it can be argued that Jesus' physical suffering was not unique to Him. That there are plenty of other people who have suffered physically as much as Jesus. There have been many wars in which the forms of massacre and torture of human beings to their bodies have been excruciating. Worse forms than even crucifixion. Even with respect to His physical suffering, we can say it, it really is not unique to Jesus. But what was unique, you see, was especially that which He experienced in His soul. That's the problem with movies and pictures of today which try to depict the suffering of Jesus Christ upon His body. They can't truly show the main part of His suffering for it was inward, bodily and as to His soul. So that so agonizing was that soul suffering that we see in this event, the first point we're considering, 
pressed out of him blood. What is the explanation of that unfathomable, immeasurable suffering of the soul? Well, you know, the Catechism explains he sustained in body and soul the the wrath of God. All his lifetime, he experienced in body and soul especially the wrath of God. Children, it's, it wasn't just at the cross. We'll get to that. But from the very beginning of his life, the fiery wrath of God against our sins was pressing in upon Jesus' soul. So that when he felt hunger, it wasn't just hunger that he felt. He knew it as God bringing hunger upon him in His wrath. So that when he got sick, or he received a cut, he fell down as he was outside playing as a child. He did not only take it as pain to his body, but he took it as God's wrath against him. And when his brothers, his own brothers, rejected him, when his own people hated him, when his own disciples denied him and forsook him and betrayed him, it wasn't just a difficult emotional and mental strain upon him. It was that too, but he he had to receive it. As God's rejection of him, God's wrath throughout his whole life, Now think about how through his life there was this increase, this intensification from the womb all the way to Gethsemane, and then that spike to increase it to that exponential degree. There was an awful anticipation throughout his life of that which was worse to come. That anticipation is especially what he was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. To know that what he endured, the wrath of God already upon him, was, it, was, it was bad already, it was, it was agony already, but this is not the worst of it. There's more, much more. It was as if he was walking toward the edge of a cliff. And he knew that very soon it would be the plunge into pain and fiery wrath far more, far more than what he had already endured. Take this cup, he prayed. If it be possible. What's the significance of this for us? Number one. It shows us how, how loathsome our sins really are. Look at the suffering of Jesus. Realize the pain, the suffering He bore the intensity that increased through his life and began to climax the Garden of Gethsemane, see the trouble, the heaviness of soul, the blood that dropped as large drops of sweat on the ground. Can you, beloved, say that your, your sins are just a trifle when you look at that? Oh, it was just a mistake that I lied yesterday. Don't make a big deal out of it. Christ.
Christ had to take this kind of suffering for that sin that you are minimizing. Sin is not small. Sin is not a little thing. Sin is not something just to brush off. It is loathsome. It is that which brought upon Christ this lifelong misery. Sin must be punished, remember, not just eternally, but temporally. Throughout life, sin outrages God to this degree that He would punish His own Son and bring Him to this collapsing agony in the garden. How can you think of sin as something so little when Jesus suffered it in this great measure, crying and sweating and trembling under its weight? Next time you think of sinning, young woman and young man, next time you think that dishonoring your parents and disrespecting them is something little, next time you think that that sin is something you may go and continue in because that's what everyone does, remember Christ's agony. Lifelong. Remember Him in the garden. And may your sin never be small to you again. My soul, He said, is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Sin should make us weep as we think upon how much Christ suffered. Second, this significance of His lifelong suffering is that it shows the exceeding great love of Jesus toward us. Remember, Jesus is not being forced against His will to suffer any of this. Any of it. Jesus is God. He is God the Son, remember? We've just considered that. He is God the Son who voluntarily thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took Himself form of a, of a servant, made Himself of no reputation, and suffered. Every bit of His lifelong suffer, suffering was a voluntary taking on of suffering in order to save us. As the Catechism says, to redeem us, our body and our soul, from everlasting damnation. It was to make propitiation. Catechism calls it a propitiatory sacrifice. That's an important word. Often the word atonement and propitiation go together. Atonement means the covering of our sins. Like the snow covering the dirt of the ground, covering us and our dirty sin. Propitiation is that which must take place in order that there might be that covering. Propitiation is the appeasing or the satisfying of wrath. It's the sacrifice necessary that takes on the wrath in our stead. He was a propitiation. A sacrifice that satisfies all of wrath against us. This is love. This is love. Not that we love God. That He loved us. Seen here in Christ's work. Husbands, husbands, you who are to be Christ to your wives, listen, this is the love of the husband for his church. He didn't just die for his bride. He wasn't just willing to die for his bride at the end of his life. Oh, he did that. But first, he lived for her. He lived a life of intensifying suffering and perfect righteousness for her so that He might save her. That's love, husbands. That's the love of a husband. He didn't just make one sacrifice. It was a lifelong sacrifice for his wife. 
How are you reflecting that, husbands? And in that question, you know, both men and women, how we fail in that love. But He suffered for us and for all of our failures. What love? Such intensifying, lifelong suffering shows the loathsomeness of sin, the, the, the great love of Jesus Christ for us, the church. And finally, it proves that we are saved from the worst of suffering. We are. Yes, we suffer. There's much pain in this life. But turn, beloved, turn to Christ's suffering and see that He took the greater part of it. Remember, His suffering was all a suffering of the wrath of God so that every conflict Every betrayal, every denial, every physical pain, every emotional hardship was taken upon Christ, by Christ, as an expression of God's wrath. For you, His people, no suffering, not a single bit of suffering that you and I must endure as difficult as it is, is an expression of God's wrath. But it must be, it must be, though it doesn't always feel like it, it must be, and we know it by faith, it must be God's favor upon us. For Christ has endured all of God's wrath. He has taken all the payment for our sins. And your pain, it is pain. You're suffering cannot be that which pressed out of Jesus the bloody sweat in the garden. It cannot be God's wrath. The second event of Jesus' suffering is the unjust judgment before Pilate found in Luke 23. Pilate, the Roman governor and judge, said again and again that Jesus was innocent. And then executed Him at the cross. Pilate was not stupid. He was a Roman governor of Judea. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew what justice was. He knew that the Jews were trying to manipulate him to rid themselves of Jesus because they hated him so. So when the Jews brought Jesus to his court after they had already tried him at Caiaphas's court, and they themselves could not find anything wrong with Jesus except for the crime of blasphemy that they accused him of, when they came to Pilate, they had no case. They couldn't blame him for blasphemy because a secular court like Pilate's would not punish someone for blasphemy. They could care less about blasphemy. And when Pilate examined Jesus, he found that Jesus was not guilty of insurrection, treason against Caesar. And three times, at least, he came before the Jews and said, I find no fault in this man. Luke twenty-three fourteen. I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof he accused him. And not only that Pilate find no fault in him, and not only the Jews find no fault in him, but he said in verse 15 that he had sent Jesus to Herod, and Herod also had found no fault in him. The, the most wicked of men could not find any fault in Jesus. And then Pilate stood up. And though the verdict that he had declared was not guilty, innocent, 
the sentence, the sentence that he proclaimed as judgment against Jesus was worthy of crucifixion, of the worst form of legal punishment, the capital punishment of death on the cross. Injustice. Injustice. He who should have been worthy of immediate release and protection of the Roman government, and more, even worthy of worship, was condemned as the worst criminal. The people shouted, Crucify him! And crucify him. They didn't have any reason to it. They forced Pilate. And Pilate, not because of any reason, but because he feared the Jewish mob and losing of a good reputation, condemned Jesus. That he, being innocent, the catechism says, yet condemned, condemned. Here is great injustice. Children, sometimes you cry out, and adults, you do too. Not fair. It's not fair. And it's true, sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes that is part of our suffering. We have not been fairly treated. We often mean by that cry, though we ought not mean it, we often mean by that cry, I deserve better. This is not what I deserve. Well, you know, that's not true. You know what we deserve for our sins. Here is injustice. He wasn't merely innocent of the crimes of sedition and blasphemy. But he was clear of every single sin. He had the fullness of every virtue of goodness and love and gentleness and honesty and righteousness and hatred of sin. And he took this perfect lamb without blemish. And they murdered him. The significance of this event of Christ's suffering under Pontius Pilate is first, again, it shows us our sin. Pontius Pilate represents the wickedness of mankind. He represents, yes, the, the wickedness of the Roman Empire and the Gentiles of that day, those of the world. What gross injustice. What great inconsistency. The Roman Empire that claimed to be just now performs one of the grossest acts, the grossest act of injustice. And yet Pilate represents not only the Gentiles, but he represents the Jews. Remember, Remember, who is the one that pressured Pilate? Well, it's a threatening mob. Verse 25 of Luke 23, but he delivered Jesus to their own will. That's what the Jews wanted. That is, that is what the church wanted. The Jews and Gentiles the church and the world wanted Jesus crucified. That is the grossness of sin. Both in the world and in the church. Because sin, every sin, is an attack against Jesus. 
who was perfect, who was pure. And yet Pilate does not only represent the sinfulness of the world and church, in his official capacity, when he made that declaration, He represented God. That's the profound meaning of the catechism. That he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Pilate is in a position that God had placed him. He stands there not only as a judge placed there by Caesar of Rome, but God in His providence has controlled all things so that Pontius Pilate is a temporal judge representing God Himself. Romans 13 verse 4, describing sinful government officials, we read this, He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Pilate did it in sin. Pilate did it in gross injustice. And yet, when Pilate condemned Jesus, God was declaring about His own Son, Worthy of crucifixion. Jesus told Pilate in John 19, Thou couldest have no power or authority at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Not only are you unable to crucify me of yourself, but you have no authority of yourself to crucify me. This is given you from above. Unknown to Pilate, unknown to him, God used him to bring this official judgment upon his own son. Crucifixion. And that's the gospel, you see. For the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. Though he had no personal sin, The Lord laid upon him all the sins of his elect people and then condemned Jesus with the worst judgment. So that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, immediately at the point of death, physical death, we will come before the judgment seat of God. And then one day, soul and body before the judgment seat of God at the end. The declaration concerning us ought to be guilty and worthy of eternal death. But instead, for Jesus' sake, is righteous. Worthy to be released, pardoned, and granted entrance into the kingdom of God. And that's how He judges you now who believe in Him. Though Satan accuse you, and though your conscience still burns from the sins of this past week, He speaks. The judge speaks for Jesus' sake, righteous, though worthy of death, worthy of entering, you're worthy of entering into the kingdom of heaven. Don't forget this either, beloved. That's not only how He judges you who repent and believe today, that's how He judges your spouse, who you may despise. That's how He judges your brother in a different church. 
who you might judge as going to hell. It's how He judges the worst of sinners. Not every abuser, but abusers too, who are His elect people. Forgiven for His sake. The suffering of Christ we see in the events here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then in the judgment of Pilate, and finally at the, at the cross. The accursed cross of Golgotha that we read about in Matthew 27, the worst legal form of execution that the Romans could come up with. Crucifixion upon two beams of wood that would lay a man that they had stripped of all of his clothing so that along with the pain he would bear the shame. And they nailed those spikes into his hands and to his feet. And they raised that cross so that a man would hang between heaven and earth, rejected of both, And his body would hang downward so that he would slowly suffocate to death. And there in the public view, in his nakedness and pain, the passers-by were supposed to look and be warned not only of the crimes committed as recorded on the superscription above his head. But they were supposed to mock and to deride him as they did Jesus. All of them did. The soldiers, the Jews, the public, the priests, the scribes, the elders of the church back then, the thieves themselves who were hanging on the crosses beside him, who themselves deserved it, though the one in the middle did not. They blasphemed Him and derided Him. And more than even the first two events that we consider this morning, this shows the grossness of our sin. Our sin. Your sin is to pierce Him there. To attack your spouse, to shame your child, to wound a member of the church is to reject this Christ. To come up with doctrines, to look at works which displace our Savior is to attack this Christ. To slander one another, to disrespect the elders, to cause schism in the church, is to attack this Christ. Any sin is. And the significance is not only that it shows the grossness of our sins, but it's also the curse. The curse which ought to come upon us is brought upon Him. The Catechism says He took on Him the curse. The death of the cross was accursed of God. That's what the cross symbolized. The cross was a symbol of the curse. You know what a curse is? You hear it sometimes. A curse is that which is spoken. A curse is to call down with your words. some pain, some suffering from above. And you hear curses. Some say today to you, perhaps, go to hell. And those curses hurt. But those curses often don't actually bring down 
hell. Or any other pain that that person intends to bring upon you. But when the curse came upon Jesus on that cross, it was not merely a symbol of a curse, but God spoke, go to hell. And from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that we might never be forsaken. And so though all curse us on this earth, we are never cursed of God. So that instead of being cursed, we are blessed. You see the suffering of Jesus Christ. One final application to you who remain impenitent in sin, and in your impenitence, and your impenitence for sin, meaning your stubbornness in sin, and a lack of true sorrow before God, even as you sit in the pew for your sin. One application is this, that your impenitence proves your faith is not genuine. And the suffering then points to the suffering that you deserve and you will face, intensifying lifelong at the judgment seat of God And then with a curse upon you in hell forever. Those who would reject Christ in their impenitent sin show Jesus did not suffer for you. And this is what you have merited for your sins. Repent and believe or perish. You who do believe, repenting as you believe, you may be assured, the catechism uses that word, assured that the lifelong suffering of Jesus Christ was for you, that that judgment by Pilate was God's judgment upon Christ in your place. And that curse on the cross was brought upon Christ and you are never to be cursed by God Himself, but only blessed. And then the suffering that you will, you will go through in this life. There's no attack of God against you. There's no grudge of God against you. The unwillingness of others to forgive you is not God's judgment against you. The curses they speak against you are not curses of God against you. The torture that the Antichrist one day may torture you with is not the punishment of hell. The shame that you may bear is not the shame of the cross. The death that one day you will have to face is not the wages of sin to pay you back. And the accusations of others or of your own conscience that still may prick you is not God's accusation of you. For Jesus has taken it all. And by faith you may know that and be assured. All suffering, every bit of suffering, is for your good. May, the Christ, may Christ's lifelong suffering, judgment, and curse assure you, therefore, beloved, of God's never-ending favor and care of you, even with the suffering He and His providence brings for your good. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, may the gospel of Christ's suffering have an effect upon our souls, though it is brought in weakness. Let the gospel be a power that the impenitent heart of stone is broken and contrite before the cross, that the believing heart is strengthened in faith and in assurance of faith, and that by faith we may more and more hate that sin so grievously borne by our Savior, and more and more love Him, who with so, such great love did take upon Himself our suffering. And these things we pray the glory of Thy name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hope prchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.